Okay, to return to pick up some of the themes we were talking about during the day and that we talked about last night. <clears throat> One of the things that seems to me to be so obvious is that life is extremely fragile, extremely precarious. Um, we tend not to think of it so much in the West as having that precarious quality to it. Um, often we walk around as if we were immortals uh, and nothing can happen to us. As a consequence of that, we're often extremely profligate with our time. We squander our time uh, and we squander this precious time that we have. One thing that's worth remembering in this stream of impermanence into which we're embedded and which we are also and I'll say some more about that, is that we're unaware that every moment, this moment and the previous moment and all the moments that have gone before, are completely unrepeatable. They will not come again. They are gone. We will never recapture them, no matter how hard we try. So we live in that state that I gave you a quotation from Rilke last night of actually forever taking leave of ever relinquishing ever having to drop however we're not often aware of this we're not aware of the precariousness, the fragility this fleeting time into which we're embedded into which we and to which we pay so little attention, so much so that quite often in our lives we're projecting forward. We are, as the German philosopher Heidegger says, we're always ahead of ourselves. We're projecting into the future. Um, we discard the now in service of the future and what's going on. However, it is only this now that we can really know and where we can really be. As you know, one of the themes of this, the kind of theme to impermanence, but also the other aspect of uncertainty, well, the Tibetans say there is, is actually one certainty. There is one absolute certainty for all of us. Death. The big uncertainty, of course, is when. That's the big thing. And yet, and I think this is particularly true for us in the West, as I say, we're projected out into a future that might never arrive. Um, and we dispense with the now, which is where we are, which is replete with all the meaning that we're likely to know. And we lose our sense of being for this sometimes ghost fragment of something which will never, ever transpire. So the only place we can really live in this world of impermanence is in the now. Now, this is not to discount the fact, obviously, that we have to plan. We have to do things. But, of course, that calculative planning mode of being becomes the one that often takes over. And that is the only mode of being that we tend to know, is the one of calculation and planning and you know, the future and all of the things that we you know, project for ourselves that might never happen at all. 
That includes all the good things that you might plan for yourself, but all of the fears and the worries that you hang on to as well. If we truly, as I was saying to one of the groups this afternoon, if we truly perhaps lived in the now, there would be no fear. But because we project so much into the future, we have fear. We have anxiety. And we have all the things that go with those two emotional states. And we have to, in many ways, live in the remembrance of our mortality. I remember one time when I was in India, sitting at the back of probably the biggest tourist attraction in the whole of India. I'm sure you can imagine what it is. It's called the Taj Mahal in India. There I was, sitting at the back of the Taj Mahal, eating my packed lunch, um, which I'd kind of assembled for myself on my days kind of touring around Agra. Whilst I was sitting at the back, I happened to, I don't know if any of you know this, but there's a river that runs right out the back, and you've got the red fort on one side where Shah Jahan, who built the Taj Mahal, was imprisoned, and the Taj itself, and between it, you've got the river Yamuna. Yamuna. Um, but flows between the two. And I kind of peered over and saw some dogs eating something on the side of the river. What was it? It was a corpse on the side of the river. It was a cremation which had taken place and hadn't quite been successful and the body had drifted back and the pariah dogs were eating it. Now, I don't recommend this as a kind of thing to see constantly, but it is a reminder that you get in cultures like India and other developing world countries, developing countries in the world, whereby you're constantly reminded of your mortality. Um, that death can occur very, very quickly. I lived in an area which was about 30 miles from the nearest town <coughs> in South India where the monastery was, and during the monsoon period, um, all the snakes got flushed out. Yeah, so much so I came home one night and found one in my bed. <laughs> um, you got bitten by a snake, you would not survive the journey to the nearest town to get the antidote. Now, the reason I'm saying this is because when I came back to the West, I suddenly took on this guise of immortality again. Yeah, you feel that, oh, it couldn't happen to me, it can't possibly happen to me. But of course it's happening all the time. Death is all around us, you know, from the changing of the seasons, the dying back of what is there, to you know, the loss of loved ones, friends, animals, you know, everything that is changing. Death is a constant part of life process. And it's something, in fact, we have to embrace rather than reject. In the embracing of death we have the creation of meaning in life. Death is not what makes life, for example, meaningless. Death is what actually gives us meaning. Because in knowing I have this mortal, finite, not infinite, but finite life, I have to make choices with what to do with it. So it's very prescient, very urgent that we direct our attention to making those choices, to making the choices which make our lives the most meaningful that we can possibly make them. 
if we had an infinite amount of time, perhaps we would never make any choices whatsoever. But actually, in infinite time, life would be meaningless, because we wouldn't make choices. So death can take us at any time, and this is not meant to be um, a subject of morbid brooding, I might add. Um, Tibetan culture, where I lived for a long time, and also Sri Lanka, Tibetan culture, where I lived, um, constantly has the thought of death. They came from a very harsh landscape, even before moving to India. They lived in a very harsh, land, large, harsh landscape where death was an imminent possibility. You know, there was a very high infant mortality rate, very, you know, very low mortality rate, well, sorry, very high mortality rate in terms of age. You didn't get to be you know, very old in Tibetan society. Yet, I don't know if any of you have been with Tibetans, they laugh and they joke, and they constantly have good fun about it. Whilst bearing in mind, of course, that death is a certainty, and there is the uncertainty when. Now, I want to read you something. It's nothing Buddhist at all. And I've read it a number of times in this room. And no matter how many times I read this, I still find it very moving. And it's from a book which is called Rowing Without Oars. And it's by a Scandinavian um, author called Ulla Karin Lindquist, who actually was a TV presenter in Sweden, um, who at the height of her career, was diagnosed with an extremely sort of virulent form of motor neuron disease called ALS, of which she subsequently succumbed to. She died. But in her final weeks, months, she put together her thoughts and reflections on what having this disease meant um, and really about reflections on life and death in general. And I just want to read you a couple of sections from this, um, because I think it really brings it home uh, in terms of how we can sadly get to a point where we don't reflect on this at all, up to the point of dying from something like this and never having reflected on the beauties and the wonders and the awe of life which we let go so easily in our neurotic strivings. Um, and these are the reflections. They're not terribly long, um, the first, she says, I'm going to die of ALS, this form of motor neuron disease, if nothing unpredictable happens. There are two roads I can take. One is to lie down, be bitter, and wait. The other is to make something worthwhile of the misfortune. See it in a positive light, however banal that might sound. My road is the second. I have to live in the immediate present. There is no bright future for me, but there is a bright present. Children live like this, only for the present. Nothing coming afterwards. Therefore, I laugh like a child, uncontrollably. The whole of my adult life I have thought it will be all right in the end. I have to do this first, then it will be all right. But this way of thinking is no longer possible. The strange thing is that nowadays, when I am terminally ill, I feel moments of great joy, such as I have hardly ever felt in my life before. Happiness has never been a constant for me, but now it is becoming one. That's why I laugh. And if it has anything to do with the bulbar paralysis, then it's a blessing that comes with the disease of ALS. 
And there's just one other short extract I want to read to you, which, again, I think it's in the mouth of one of her children, um, which, again, I think brings it back home about living in the present. She said, Gustav, this is her son, comes and stands beside my desk. Do you write all the time, Mummy? It takes such a long time now, I reply. I only write with two fingers now. Mummy, I'm a miniature human being. What? You're big and I'm little. No, Gustav, you're big. You have your whole life in front of you, the future. Now it's me who's getting small. Mummy, every second is a life, he says gently. What did you say? Every second is a life. Where have you heard that? Nowhere. I just made it up. And he carries on. You have hundreds of thousands of lives left before you, Mummy. Every second is a life. I echo. What, and I don't know how it strikes you, what, what I found so terribly moving about that is that those perceptions can come towards the end of a life. Um, but we don't often feel them at the time. We don't feel them now. We don't feel the wonder and the awe of what it means to be because of what I, you know, the comment I made before, because of our neurotic strivings, our projecting ahead, our futures that we plan. And I'm not saying some of this isn't necessary, it is, but it becomes obsessional. It becomes an obsession for nearly all of us that we plan in this way and we project and we think we're actually going to arrive there and that future is going to be a better and brighter place than where we are right now. Well, it might not be. You know, for one, as she says in those passages, I, you know, it might never arrive. You might never get it. There is no future in that sense. So it's learning to live the impermanence in this fleeting now, in this fleeting moment. Okay, we make our plans. All of you have to make plans to get here, I'm sure, you know, to create the conditions whereby you can come away for a couple of nights and to be here. But once you're here, once you're where you've you know, planned for, once you've set that in motion, there's no need for us to hold on to it any longer. But this is what we do. We hold on to that mode of planning and lose sight of being. And we do it so easily. And there's a number of other ways we do this as well. I mean, that's one. This kind of ruminative planning, projecting ahead. There is the association of our being with our doing. You know, I am only who I am because of what I do and I've got to do constantly. Um, and project and feel my role, whatever that might be. You know, um, some of us perhaps look in our diaries and see a full diary and say, I'm a successful person, I've got a full diary. <laughs> yeah. Whereby we lose sight of what is here in this moment. We lose sight of, of as I say, this magnificence and awe. And this is one of the things that for me characterizes our loss of sense of being as a loss of the sense of wonder that we can have of that which is around us. 
we can get obsessed by the depressive aspects, and I'm not saying there's nothing bad going on in the world that wouldn't be so naive, but we lose sight of the beauty of what is here when we become swamped and obsessed again by the negative aspects of what is there in life. So living in permanence in this way is to grasp, or perhaps grasp is the wrong word, perhaps to live this now, to relax into it, to come back to where we are, (laughs) not where we would like to be, but where we actually are and to embrace it. We tend to also think of the meaning of our lives embedded in big things, big projects, big ideas, big senses, where in this fleeting, evanescent world, ever-changing, like billowing clouds, moving, we lose sight of the fact that meaning for most of us is actually there in the small, minute details of life that passes by because we are projecting our sight, our vision is looking out towards something else, towards some ideal, and overlooking what is here. And in many ways, and I'm sure, and I haven't used one Buddhist word so far this evening, I might have given you some quotations, but not one Buddhist word, but I'm going to use one, because Buddhist thought and practice speaks constantly about delusion and ignorance. And actually what I'm speaking about now, this overlooking, this projecting onto an ideal of a wanting it to be this way, is actually a fundamental description of ignorance, of not seeing what is in front of your nose, not being with what is. Even if you etymologize the English word ignorance, it means to ignore in the service of something else, to overlook. This is what the word actually means. It doesn't just mean deprivation of knowledge. We all can take this idea of ignorance as being, well, we're ignorant because we simply haven't got the right knowledge. This is a case, unfortunately, I'm, I'm, I'm very afraid to say to you, if you had all the knowledge, you'd probably still ignore it anyway. And that's what happens even when, if you like, impermanence is shouting itself at you. (laughs) It's screaming at you all the time that's around. And you're looking and projecting and doing the same old things again and again and again. We're overlooking it. We're ignoring it. We lapse into a state of delusion. So there's something more, and this is connecting with what I was saying last night, There is something more to this than just head knowledge. I often joke in this room about the fact, you know, many of us, I don't know if you're the case, many of us have over the years collected lots and lots and lots of books on Buddhism or other spiritual disciplines. It doesn't matter. It applies to any spiritual discipline. Place them there on your shelves and you think somehow by osmosis (laughs) it's going to wreak a miracle on you. Even if we've read all those books, it probably doesn't make much difference. It's like the person who has a deep, deep addiction and knows all 
of the reasons why they shouldn't be engaged in the addictive practice that they have and the health detriments and all the rest of it will still continue to do it. And I'm afraid that's often the situation for ourselves, that we continue to do it no matter how detrimental to our health we might know it is. So it's making the move from simply having the knowledge into something becoming, as I was saying last night, some kind of embodied knowledge, a knowledge of the heart. In Buddhism, we have a word, unfortunately, we have lots of words in Pali and Sanskrit for things which actually have very kind of one-word translations for in English. And there's this classic word in, in Pali and Sanskrit, it's exactly the same in both languages, which is the word chitta, which usually gets translated as mind. Chitta is mind, but it means mind and heart as well, combined. Uh, this accusation often used to be made by Tibetan teachers that I used to have about Western people in general. They said, you know, trouble is Western as you think here, pointing to the head, and not here, you know, pointing to the heart. All too much of it's up there. Um, they used to be very impressed, by the way, at the way um, Westerners you know, could learn things very, very quickly. And I always remember one Tibetan teacher said to me once, he said, this is the monastery where I was studying, he said, I'm very, very impressed with Westerners. They learn incredibly quickly but they also forget incredibly quickly. <laughs> because it never really enters into the bloodstream <clears throat> in the same way. And overcoming this delusory state is overcoming this aspect of just seeing it as head knowledge, not beginning to embody it, to really have it as... An old-fashioned word we used to have, knowing by heart... where it entered into the bloodstream somehow. You know, often if you say learning something by heart or knowing something by heart, it's almost a pejorative term these days. You know? Whereas that term originally meant, actually, and came from the medieval period, to enter in really fully into our embodiment so that you know, it could be recalled very easily. Yeah. So, in living this impermanence, we, in a sense, have to keep reminding ourselves of some of the things I've spoken about already, our mortality, the fleeting moment which is unrepeatable. And I don't know if that strikes you. When I first encountered this idea that each moment was a completely unrepeatable moment, it kind of was, it was a, a moment of awe for me. <laughs> you know, there I was, having thinking, well, I'm looking forward to my next holiday, <laughs> when you know, I'm going to do this and I'm actually going to, to enjoy myself, I'm thinking, what on earth am I doing? You know, rather than relaxing into this now moment, instead of projecting into this future. Um, the poet, the French poet, Rambeau, used to have this wonderful, he said, life was always elsewhere. <laughs> you know, it was never here right now. You know, and this is what we're learning to do, to come to the right now. Mortality is something, as I've said, none of us will escape. Even, according to the classic Pali text, the Buddha did not escape death. He did not escape old age and sickness at all. He even jokes about it. Um, this might be a surprise to you. If, uh, I'm used to kind of Buddhist scriptures. There are jokes in Buddhist scriptures sometimes. 
And the Buddha says about himself as he's getting more and more decrepit, he says to his attendant one day, he says, Ananda, he says, I'm like an old cart that's only kept going by being bound up with straps. <laughs> yeah. And I think it's a lovely image. He's kind of just making fun of the whole situation. And eventually, of course, the Buddha succumbs to illness and he dies at the age of 80. Um, and in the early Buddhist scriptures, which are preserved there in the, in the Pali forms, there is no equivocation about this. The Buddha is dead, he ceases to take part in any human activities whatsoever. Yeah. But he enters that state without fear. He makes that movement towards the final, you know, the final journey, if you want to call that, without all the anxieties and the fears and the worries. It says he basically enters into the death state calmly, quietly, peacefully, yeah, without any of the railing against human mortality that we can so easily slip into. As I joked with you last night, you know, when we say... Yeah, of course, one knows one's going to die, kind of head stuff again. Yeah, I know I'm going to die. Yeah. Generally means, yeah, I know everybody else is, but not me. <laughs> I'm not going to die. And because we distance ourselves from it. We don't accept it. We don't take on board this mortal finitude that we have. And until we learn to do that, perhaps we can't begin to live life fully to make those choices that need to be made. And the choices that need to be made on the spiritual path, just a want of a term, and I don't even particularly like that term, spiritual path, but want you know, for, to enter into the choices that we need to make between unwholesome ways of living and more wholesome ways of living. Ways of living that decrease dukkha, you know, pain, Suffering, discomfort, anxiety, fear, worry. You know, we could have a whole litany of terms, but the basic unsatisfactoriness of our existence that decrease that, both for ourselves and for those that are around us, as opposed to living in ways which, you know, that's the only way I can describe it. I think sometimes when we look back at our lives, you look at a wake of destruction that's come through. You, know, you see the bits bobbing around in the water. <laughs> you know, and wonder how on earth that ever happened. Now, this is not to say that we are bad people. I really do not want us to get that impression. It's just that we live life very unskillfully a lot of the time. In a sense, we don't know better. Part of entering into this exploration, these ways of thinking, is to, to explore, to investigate, to really start to look at new and much more wholesome ways of living this life. So that in a way, and I'm not joking about this, we can realise our maximum potential, our potential, potential to be really human in this life, with all that might imply to realise the maximum that, that is given to you with your human embodiment, the potentiality for care, the potentiality for compassion, the potentiality for kindness, for insight, for generosity. I could go on, but I'm not. You know, all of these things which you know, are not exclusive to Buddhism, they're not exclusive to the Buddhist path. 
They just seem to me to be sane ways of living. Yeah? Nothing else. You don't have to talk about it as being the exclusive property of the Buddhist path. They seem to me to be sane ways of living that bring us into engagement with the what is in a much, much more harmonious fashion, rather than the discordance and the disharmony that is created by the unskillful and unwholesome ways that we can live our lives. Reflection, I think, on our mortal being, not brooding, remember I was saying this, not brooding, this is not meant to be a case for brooding and getting miserable about it, but this reflection on our mortality can bring us into the realisation, perhaps something sometimes we don't even think of, that you can do it. That you can live much more harmoniously. You can be in much more fruitful ways in this life. Rather than you know, to constantly have, perhaps, as I say, this image of the wake of destruction that we might leave behind us as we move through life. So the choices that are to be made, and these choices encompass every dimension of our lives. We have so many choices. It often seems to me the Western world gives us more and more and more and more. So I feel like I've had too much to think, you know. (laughs) We've got so many choices which are often offered out to us. Um, So it's sifting through those, realising the ones which will carry us forward in this wholesome fashion, whilst realising the ones which will hold us enthralled to the materialism, the culture of materialism, the culture of aggression, the culture of violence, the culture of ignorance, and all of these things which, from my point of view, I see all too often reflected where we are in the Western world, Uh, And we almost glory in it a lot of the time. We make a virtue out of aggression. We make a virtue out of violence, from institutional violence of the threatening letter down to the abusive relationship taking place in the family. It's there across the spectrum of our societies. So making these choices means that we don't necessarily have to buy into all of this. Only you can make those decisions. Only you can conduct the investigation. There's nobody there saying it has to go in this way or it has to go in that way. The results you will see, as I say, in the decrease of the dukkha in the lives of yourself and the lives of others. The ability to pay more attention to what is going on. In a way, and I'm kind of using a metaphor here, turning life from being something fairly monochromatic to getting colour television. It suddenly starts to come to life when you learn to pay attention, to be aware. Not that awareness is everything, because behaviour has to change as well. And the foundation of all of this is ethical practice. Learning to look at your speech acts. Learning to look at the way that you earn your livelihood. And whether that, for example, might clash with the way that right speech, if we take the Eightfold Path in Buddhism, is defined. Learning to look at our actions, 
Now, one thing that we cannot do is refrain from acting. We're acting continuously. Our actions have consequences. All of our actions. Action with consequences plus intention, well, there's a technical word for that. It's called karma. That is all. That's all it is. People tend to think of karma as some kind of metaphysical thing, and it's not. All it is is saying that every time we act, there's an intention behind it, and often, dependent on the intention, the consequences will accrue to that action. And we cannot not act. Even if I sat in a cave in the Himalaya doing nothing, I would be creating consequences of some form. Now, most of us are not in that situation. And I wouldn't even want us to be in that situation. But we're out there in the world doing things. So it's beholden upon us in many ways to have to develop an awareness if we're interested in investigating a potentiality of being for ourselves, then we have to investigate those actions which lead to unpleasant, unwanted consequences and those ones which are perhaps directed more at the kind of consequences you would like to see accruing to both yourself and to those that are around you. Because, like it or not, we're in a world with others. We can't divorce ourselves out from it. We can't get out of it. In a sense, there's no outside. There is only inside with others. So everything I do, say, think in many ways, has a consequence on those that are around me. We see this from the intangible to the tangible, the person who is visibly nasty and aggressive and violent, who will create a particular atmosphere, to the person who says nothing, who moves in, but because of their presence of being, creates a wonderfully radiant atmosphere. We see that. It's tangible and intangible, both at the same time. A lot of that is dependent on the thought processes because, let's face it, thought does not remain thought. It's there. It's kind of written on the body in many ways. It's written into our gestures, what you know, loosely becomes body language and that. And so when we are in thrall, perhaps, to the prevalent culture, then our gestures themselves become redolent of aggression, anxiety, frustration, sadness. You know, when they're not, they become more like, and I'm going to use a Buddhist term here again, what's called mudra um, in Buddhism. And some of you have seen statues, all these Buddhist statues all have their hands in different positions. And these are all called gestures of awakening. Yeah. And these gestures are meant to, if you, if you like, correspond to the mental state that goes behind and infuses them. So that the gesture, for example, of generosity is the open hand, yeah. the hand of giving, as opposed to the clenched fist, which is obviously the opposite here. The potential is for both. Yeah. The potential is to move from one to the other. But on this path, if we're really trying to do it, if we're really trying to be in this moment, it means looking also at our gestural sense of being in the world. Yeah. This is not ideas. This is about how we 
as I've kept emphasizing, embody the teaching, embody what we've learned, embody what we're investigating. Now, I don't pretend, pretend that we're going to do this 100%. You know, we're not in the awakened state. You know, but we can begin to see what happens in every individual moment by experimenting what happens when I drop the habitual ways of behaving, the habitual reactions, the reactive patterns that I'm caught up in, or we are caught up in, some of which are conditioned by our societies and some of which are conditioned by our own histories, our own backgrounds, our own relationships and formations of relationships. So we can examine our relationship, to use that word again, with our habits. And we only do that, I think, if we're aware that there isn't limitless time. And this is nothing about future lives or any of this stuff that's so often spoken about. It's about how one lives as well as you can in this moment. If there is such things, I've always thought they'll take care of themselves. (laughs) But what we do know is that we have a potentiality to live as fully as we can in this moment or to blow it. To lose it. And so it really means coming into this moment, beginning to see it, beginning to palpate it, to look, to become aware. You know, I hope I'm making the sound as it isn't at all to do with any great intellect. It's about the examination of your own life. Nobody else's, but your own life, based on your own experiences to see how you create dukkha for yourself and others, how you can eliminate it for yourself and others. And that potentiality, the Buddha tries to make it very clear to us, we all have. In some traditions, not in the very early tradition, in the late traditions, this becomes called Buddha nature. The idea that everybody can reach that goal. Now it's worth just, again, pausing here, although I'm drawing to the end of what I want to say this evening, to just reflect on what Buddhahood means. I did a little bit of it last night, but I want to remind us, just in case, again, you've forgotten, because it's so important. Talked about potentialities and seizing it in the now and moving forward and looking at the wholesome, the unwholesome. There are a number of ways of translating it. One way, and particularly when it was translated into Tibetan, they translated it as the word Sangye into Tibetan, um, the word Buddha. And actually, literally, if you etymologize it and break it down, the word Sangye means where every unwholesome quality has been eliminated and everything wholesome has grown. Bit of a mouthful, so we just say Buddha. <laughs> but I think just examining it in that way, you can see what's being aimed at. The other meaning, which I did touch on last night, of the word Buddhahood or Buddha, is that the Buddha is awakened. Now, I always think this is so important. This is why I personally don't like the word enlightenment. 
It kind of takes us away from the point here. The point of this practice, no matter how small to the goal, is to wake ourselves up, to stop sleepwalking through life, to stop bumping into those objects again and again and again and again. Only sometimes when we bump into an object, and I'm kind of metaphorizing it here, uh, and it becomes so painful, do we actually go, ooh, what's going on? (laughs) And open an eye, and we might actually see something. You know, but a lot of the time we're just wondering why we keep having the same old bruises. <laughs> you know, because we actually haven't opened our eyes and looked what is around at all. So the challenge, really, of the nature of Buddha Buddhahood is to wake up, to wake up to what is really there, to live that potentiality, to grow all of that wholesome material by sowing. You know, making the ground fertile, sowing the seeds, and letting the fruit arise out of it. Much of the practice you're engaged in, in the sorts of things you're doing here. You know, sometimes you can think, oh, I've done this before, it's boring. <laughs> Don't want to do it again. You know? But actually what you're engaged in is actually tilling the soil. Tilling the soil is a very laborious process. particularly if you're doing it by hand. (laughs) And that's what you're doing here. You're creating the field, the right conditions to lay down the seeds. In fact, the seeds are already there. You're allowing them, um, the conditions to germinate. From a Buddhist perspective, the mind, this flux that I've spoken about, I haven't even touched on something yet I was going to talk about this evening, but never mind. Um, This mind, which is a flux, which is this wonderful representation, if you like, of all that is impermanent, is, to put it crudely, a vast soup. It's a soup of wholesome ingredients and unwholesome ingredients. What we're attempting to do, if you like, is skim off the unwholesome stuff and allow the wholesome stuff to be tasted that's within the soup. I'm afraid it's it's a very crude metaphor, but hopefully it means something to you. So within the mind, there is all the potentialities for the unwholesome as well as the wholesome. So, coming back to this practice, in this fleeting flux of our experience, because that's what our experience is, it's flux, it's evanescent, It arises and passes away, that phrase I've often used. We're attempting to see the what is going on, to wake up to it again, to know what is there, to know the wholesome as wholesome, to know the unwholesome as unwholesome. Now, sometimes we do this already. It's a natural thing. You can see, you know, the bad temper you get up with in the morning sometimes is completely unjustified. (laughs) You you can see that and you can feel it. Sometimes it doesn't stop you from spreading it around still, but never mind. Um, But you see it as unwholesome. But there are elements of our experience which are far more subtle than that. The motivations, the intentions behind them are far more ambiguous, paradoxical. And so this close attention we're paying begins begins to allow us to enter into that field of examination 
to really begin to see the unwholesome as unwholesome, to see the reactive patterns which grow out of that. Often what we do is not so much a case of thought as more a case of reaction. That is all. Putting it in slightly different terms, it's a case of stimulus and response. There's a certain set of responses which are programmed in. uh, Given certain stimuli, they will be activated. And if you've ever known, if you have people who are really close to you, they know you, and they can push those buttons (laughs) and get those responses coming. As you can probably gather, even from just from the way I'm putting this, the way I'm formulating it, there is very little freedom in that. If I, for example, um, see that sting in the window and I desire it, I'm somewhat like Pavlov's dog. Pavlov's dogs, when they rang the bell and they salivate for it. It's that case of stimulus and response. And... Yeah, there is a kind of almost myth within the Western world that all our desires should be satisfied. <laughs> Unfortunately, desires are endless. Yeah, they will never reach satiation point. There will always be something else. However, as I say, there is really little freedom in that. So what we're trying to create in this examination and this investigation of this moment-by-moment-to-moment awareness what sometimes is called you know, attentiveness, awareness, mindfulness. There's lots of different words which are really referring to the same thing. What I'm attempting to do is bring as much clear-sightedness as I can possibly bring to bear, given the conditions, almost you can say the lighting conditions, you know, at this moment in time on what is going on. And it's that attempt to do it again and again and again. Not just in this artificial situation of sitting in cushions. As I've said before, this is practice. And we have this wonderful word, don't we? I'll go and do some sitting practice. And it is practice, because that's exactly what you're doing. Practicing for going out into the ordinary world where you won't get the chance, the luxury, often to say, oh, here I see bad temper arising. (laughs) Here I see ill will or whatever it might be arising, because usually they're going <laughs> annoyed at whatever's going on. Yeah. So this is, in a sense, privileged, artificial, but is a chance to become familiar with yourself. In a way, that is the only way you're going to begin to live in permanence yeah. by familiarising yourself with this fleeting nature, with something I haven't talked about at all, which I did intend to talk about, which is also the fleeting nature of that which we identify as ourselves. Perhaps I'll just say a couple of words, because it won't remain the same. You know, so much so that, I don't know about you, but I've often done this, has looked back at my earlier life and thinking, you know, almost metaphorically, that was a past life. Yeah. I'm completely different now. Well, yes and no. Who I am today was dependent on who I was yesterday and the day before and the day before that. The conditions don't remain identical, but there is continuity there. 
There is a continuity of experience running through. Hopefully there's some continuity of learning running through as well, although sometimes I'm a little pessimistic about that. (laughs) But there is a continuity of experience running through. The, the nature of the self, the notion of the, the self that we have is not, in Buddhist terms, a fixed thing. You know, the I that we identify so much with, so much so that the, the Buddha says, you know, this I, this self that we're so attached to, it's a bit like having a post nailed into the ground with a dog tethered to it, because all you do is run round and round and round it. That's all. Yeah. But however, this nature of the self, this notion of the self, which is there in Buddhism, and I can only throw this out for you to investigate further, is that it's a process. The I is merely a nominal entity, it's a name only. There is no such thing as I within this flux of experience. That doesn't mean you don't exist, or there is no process of self going on, but there is no fixed, unchanging aspect to you. That's good news, by the way, because it means that change is always possible. Change is always possible. The goal, again, coming back to what I was saying about this awakening possibility and the maximising of our potential, is always open to us. No matter how young you are, no matter how old you are, it doesn't matter. It's always there as something. Um, that we can fulfill. And I think I'll finish there. <laughs> okay, well, again, as with last night, I'll throw it open for comments and questions if there are any. strange phrase, isn't it? <laughs> thinking, thinking everything stopping and you're actually starting to let go of everything you normally have. Okay, well the main, the main, the main I suppose, indication that it's not mere blankness is if, you're, if there's alert attentiveness to whatever the object is. Now it might be paying attention to the stream of movement of the mind. It might be paying attention to the movement of the breath. But it's this alert, bright attentiveness that's there. It's not an anaesthetization. You know, that's really important. You know, Buddhist meditational practice does not aim at soporific, anaesthetized states. That's not what it's about. You know, so if there's that alert attentiveness, it's, genuine, it's generally an indication that awareness is properly focused. And that's all we're trying to do, is properly focus our awareness, to be, to use what I was saying before, as aware and awake as possible at this moment in time.
just on the back of that, I want to say something I said to one of the, you know, during one of the meditation sessions this morning. Meditational practice isn't about having a blank mind. Actually, there's nobody with a hoover that's going to come along and hoover out your thoughts. You know, nothing like that's going to happen. It's not necessary for it to happen anyway. It's the relationship that you come into with the what is going on that's important. You know, either that being carried off with them, grasping after them, or perhaps rejecting them, you know, which is the two modes that we generally have of being with our thought processes. So as a consequence of that, we often end up dividing ourselves. You know, the bits about ourselves we, deal with, we like and the bits ourselves we dislike. And they're in kind of war, tension, uh, between the two of them. This is about full and radical acceptance of where you are. Any movement can only occur from full and radical acceptance of where you are. It's like really, really knowing the ground that you stand on. Except this is not any old ground, it's you. <laughs> you know, it's that full acceptance of what is there. And actually that can be quite difficult. <laughs> In fact, I should say it can be extremely difficult. <laughs> not just quite. Um, you know, Eastern teachers were sometimes quite horrified by the way that Westerners divided themselves up in this way when they first came to the West. You know, about this great load of stuff they disliked about themselves and actually really didn't like themselves very much at all. And so a lot of the time spent by Eastern teachers when they first came to the West was actually getting people to like themselves a bit better. In a sense, this beginning to explore this ground... And I used a phrase <coughs> before, which is, in a sense, learning to befriend yourself. Learning to become friends with who you are. You know, all the, what you would generally call the negative stuff as well as the positive stuff. In any way, that negative stuff, if you repress it, you feed it. Yeah. And if you feed it in this way by repressing it, it comes out as a bigger demon something even more virulent and even more frightening. So befriend it before it gets to its demon status, before it's there and wanting to eat you up. And I'm using kind of metaphors here, but you know, sometimes we are eaten up by these very strong repressed emotions that we haven't acknowledged. So it's getting to know the ground that you stand on, getting to know where you are, how you are. Only then can you move forward, if there is any movement, I mean even hesitate to say that sometimes. But. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.